Merciful God, who did send thy messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation, give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins, that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, the second Sunday of Advent, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are uh, having a kind of an odd week this week. We started out with some cold days, and then um, it got warm again. And today, I think it's going to be like 70 degrees or something crazy like that. And so we've we've had a kind of a quiet week in a lot of ways, I guess. We haven't done a whole lot. We, um, For those of you who, who asked me about this, we haven't been hiking much lately because Suzanne's um, been actually doing some uh, physical therapy on her back and, and her knee um, been bothering her. So we're taking some time off from hiking because it just doesn't feel smart or safe to be, uh, out doing those kinds of activities for us right now until that gets better. And so we're, we're taking some time off from that. I'm, I'm, uh, Will and I haven't been walking much because he's been pretty busy. He's, um, dating somebody right now. So that's a good thing. And, uh, so anyway, we're, we're enjoying life and it's sort of, you know, the, the post Thanksgiving thing and kind of, all right, so moving on and making plans and it's going to be busy over the next few weeks. We have multiple things to do and all that. And so that's always a good thing. Um, but anyway, we're, so we're, we're kind of in, in a holding pattern in a lot of ways, but, but in a happy holding pattern at the moment. So, um, anyway, I hope you are doing well. I hope you had a blessed Thanksgiving and that, um, that now you're you're sort of back in the groove and, and preparing to for for Christmas and for the coming again of Jesus. This season of Advent is a preparation for the parousia, the coming of the King, and so that's exactly what we're planning right now. And so how we're preparing our hearts is to remind ourselves that we still have need of Him. We have need of him in every single way. And so that's the point of Advent is to kind of prepare us again and remind us of that need. Today we're going to be looking at, uh, at John the Baptist and the role that John played. And uh, he is certainly a pivotal figure in uh, salvation history. Um, he is the, the final prophet of the Old Testament and the harbinger of the New Testament. He's also a priest because he was born in a priestly line. Both his mother and father had connections to the priesthood. Their lineage would have made John a priest, and yet he certainly didn't do a, uh, an Old Testament priestly sort of role in his life. He, he carved out a different sort of place for himself. But at the same time, I think we can see some, uh, some of how John is both prophet and priest, in uh, in his life, he he kind of fulfills both those roles. He's a transition figure uh, away from the old kind of high priest or priest in the uh, in the old covenant, and he is at some level the the first new priest in the new covenant. So John uh, is a fascinating guy, and his mission uh, is our mission. There's no difference between the mission John carried out and the message we are to carry out in the Great Commission. The only difference is we have a better message, and better in the sense, fuller message. We know that baptism is more important than even John knew baptism was. We, knew, we know now the rest of the story. John was looking for the coming in judgment 
and he was preparing a people for the coming in judgment, and he was doing it by, by one simple thing, come and repent of your sins. That's exactly our message, repent of your sins. And repent means more than just confess. It means to turn away and to move in a different direction, to agree with God is what it means to confess sin, um, is to agree with God about the nature of sin. In other words, I, to the extent that I confess a sin, I'm confessing that it's wrong, and it's a violation against God's law, and a violation against His holiness, and it's a diminution of my own hu- created humanity. And so I, I recognize that, that it then creates a, a rift and a separation between me and my Father in heaven, and so I confess with him that I agree that his law has been transgressed against. Now, the, the process goes beyond just confession. What it means is that it, that sin is abhorrent to me, that I see it for what it is, and, and that is it's, it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible violation. I have... Um, gone against my father, and I have approved something by my actions that he has said is wrong. And so I need to confess that and agree with him, but I need to do more than just say it. I need to also know it and feel it with a revulsion that causes me to change and not do that again and to move in a different direction and to move, in fact, in such a way that I'm unlikely to even be in a situation where I would do that again. And so that's confession and repentance. And if, I've, if it's an interpersonal sin where I've done something against somebody else, then I should actually go and make amends with that person by confessing to them, and to the extent there's any financial hardship caused by that, then, then I should seek to make restitution and restore things to the way they were before. It's important that we, that we follow that process and that we pay attention to that process, particularly as we prepare for the coming again of Christ, because he is coming in judgment. And so we need to be prepared for that. But we need to be a, a people who not only pray for the coming of his kingdom, but who also so long for it that we, we act as though we were in that kingdom now, as though he were among us always. And so our conduct should be spotless in that way, because it should say how much we agree with God, and how the, the measure of how much we want his kingdom is expressed in our conduct of our lives. How much are we seeking that kingdom today? How much are we seeking to establish that kingdom on earth today? And I don't even mean politics when I say that. It has nothing to do with politics. I'm really just speaking of the church and how do we represent him on earth now? How do we reveal his, him and his kingdom and our desire for it in, in our lives? Is it a priority? Is it a secondary matter? It, you surely can hear in that it should not be a secondary matter. It should be the primary concern of God's people. So, what we get, our first lesson today is from Malachi 3, 1 to 4, and Malachi is the final um, book of the Old Testament. It's about 400 years before the coming of Christ, and so Malachi um, speaks uh, of uh, one who is to come, this messenger that we're going to read about today. But it goes beyond that as well. He says Elijah will come, and then later, uh, in Jesus' time, somebody asks him about Elijah, and he said, Elijah has already come, and he's pointing to John the Baptist when he says that. 
So in Malachi, in the reading we have today, behold, I send my messenger, that's John, and he will prepare the way before me. And John says, he quotes from Isaiah and says that his job is to prepare the way of the Lord. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Those are two distinct individuals. The Lord will come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant will come as well. And so the messenger of the covenant is the one that says, I will send my messenger. That's the person that the Lord's speaking about. And so the, the messenger is there to prepare the people to receive the Lord coming in joy. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. But refiner's fire and a Fuller soap, those things were there to purify and to make perfect. So a refiner's fire is to burn away the impurities in the metal that's being dealt with. And so it's being done away with. The, the, the refiner's fire does away with the impurities, for instance, in gold or silver, and, and it burns those things away, and the thing that remains are the thing of value which is the gold itself. And Paul says very much the same thing to the Corinthians when he talks about that the foundation is Christ and then the work beyond that of building needs to be of equal quality material because ultimately everything will be burned with fire and only what is of value will remain. Everything else will be gone, whether it's hay or stubble or wood or whatever it is. No, everything needs to be of that value. And so we need to think about that as we build the house that is our life, which is our character. And so we need to be thinking of that all the time. What are we building here? We're building on the foundation that is Christ. And what are the materials that we're going to use? In the temple, for instance, and the tabernacle, what you see is the the innermost part of the sanctuary, which is where God's presence was, where the Ark of the Covenant was, the materials used in that place were of the highest value. And then that, that, that can diminish the further you get away from the Holy of Holies. And so the, the materials out in the courtyard are not as valuable as those that are in the inner sanctuary. And so that's exactly the way we're supposed to think of our lives is that we are now the temple of the Lord, as Paul told the Corinthians. And so what we need to do is make sure that the, the foundation of our life is Christ. Start there. And then everything else built onto the foundation needs to be worthy. And it needs to be built on eternal things and not just things of earth. And so so who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand with the fears? He's like a refiner's fire. And the, one of the things that a refiner does when, when he refines at least at that time, when he refined a metal, a precious metal, that, that what he wanted was at the end of it to see an unmarred reflection of himself in that refined material. It was to be that pure that, a ref, that you could see your, your untainted reflection in that metal at that time. And a fuller's soap is, is what brings whiteness. It's just bleach at some level. Um, but, but it's when, remember when Jesus is transfigured, what it says is that his garments became whiter than any fuller could get them. 
So this Fuller's soap is intended, again, to, to get, di- get deep into the fabric and cleanse it of all impurity. And, and so it says, who can stand when he comes for? He's like that. He's not just taking a surface look at you. No, it's far deeper than that. And again and again and again, discipleship is compared to that process of refining. And it's putting us into the fire, which is not pleasant, but the result is pleasing to him. He says, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. Now, the sons of Levi are the Old Testament priesthood, and, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So, so that judgment of refinery begins with the leaders of the people, the spiritual leaders of the people, because those are the ones who are to reflect the glory, the holiness, the justice, the righteousness, and the love of God to the rest of the people. So they're the front line people who who teach the people, and everything you do teaches. And that's the point of a lot of the criticisms that that the Lord makes through the prophet Malachi. The people that he is most concerned about and the people who have been the biggest failures are those people, those leaders, those priests. And what he says is, you've profaned my name because you've accepted junk animals as sacrifice, not costly animals. You've, You've taken blind and lame animals, and they're supposed to be pure and perfect, costly animals. And what you've done is you've profaned my name and you have diminished me in the eyes of the people. You don't respect my holiness. And when you don't respect my holiness with what you do, then you teach my people not to respect my holiness. You give a false impression of who God is. And we do that when we, when we skip over things like judgment in our preaching. When we get rid of hell, when we get rid of judgment, then we've given a false picture of who God is. When we say God is love, and that's all that he is, we've given a false picture of God, and that false picture of God will lead people straight to judgment and straight to hell, because they haven't been told about the holiness of God. And that's important that we remember that and that we remember what Malachi is saying. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And it begins at the household of God and it begins with the Levites. And then they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And so you're teaching people the wrong things about me by your failure to uphold my holiness. And so you've compromised, and you're leading people in the wrong direction. In the gospel, at one point, the soldiers had been sent out, the temple guards had been sent out by the chief priests and the Pharisees to arrest Jesus and bring him in for questioning, and they come back without him, and they say, well, why didn't you bring him back? And, he, and they say, well, nobody ever spoke like this guy did. And their response is, have you, have, have you been deceived also? Have any of us, the Pharisees and the chief priests, have we believed in him? Well, Nicodemus is hanging off over on the side, and, and he's not willing to say it yet, but he, but he steps into this in a couple of seconds with, with his own comments. 
and said, is it okay to, to try this man without actually giving him a trial? Can you convict him without giving a trial? And then they fuss at him. Nicodemus has is becoming a believer. They're not aware of that. He's keeping it a secret. But but after they ask that question, the response of the uh, guards is, but the people. And, oh, this people? They don't even know the law, and they're accursed. My first response to that is, what a cynical way of looking at the people that God's given under your care. But the other side of it is, is that if the people don't know the law, whose responsibility is that? Whose failure is that? Is it the people's failure, or is it the priesthood failure? Because they were to be the teachers of the people. And to the extent those people are accursed, and you're not saying that to their faces, then you're failing them by failing to love them enough to shout and tell them, warning, there's a problem. What you're doing and where we're headed is leading to disaster. And if you're failing to do that, then you're failing as a priest. And it's as simple as that. And right now, we have people who lead churches who are failing in exactly that way. They're failing to teach, and they're failing to give warning. They're failing to uphold the holiness of God. They're failing to uphold his codes for righteousness by saying, well, no, that, that actually, that, that's an Old Testament thing. That, that's not really important. It is. And, and where we fail is exactly where the churches, some of the churches that are addressed in the letters in Revelation were failing as well. And so we've got to, to repent of that as the church. We need to be very clear, no matter what the cost is to us, no matter whether people don't like us because we say these things and, and we prefer to be nice and polite, and I mean, you don't have to give unsolicited opinions about everything, but be clear when you're asked. Just be clear. It's the only way that we can, we, we can and should live. We have to be clear with people about what the reality of sin and of judgment. It's the first work of the Holy Spirit. In the gospel today, <clears throat> Luke's going to introduce us to John. In the 15, he's going to give us first, he's going to allow us to triangulate it, no matter how far away we are from this in time. He gives us ways to triangulate exactly when this happened. He is, Luke is so clear about this, and it's what he's trying to do. He's trying to leave an accurate record. He's writing a forensic report essentially, on everything. And he wants to be able to say, when I write this forensic report, you should be able to check out the things that I've told you. And so he says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was the tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So John's given us all kinds of ways to triangulate the date here. And, and he, the, the reason that he's a, a little um, iffy on the last part, the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, it's because at that point that had become almost a political office and they were beholden more to the Romans than they were to God or to the people. And so the, the, it switched back and forth interchangeably and it would be difficult to figure out, you know, exactly which one was high priest at that time. Remember, at one point, Paul says something, and he calls the high priest a whitewashed tomb. And, and then the question becomes, you're not supposed to speak against God's anointed that, that way. And Paul says, well, I didn't know. 
and your first reaction is how could how could this guy Paul who's so enmeshed in Judaism not know that that was the high priest and it's because it flipped back and forth in in kind of a random pattern and so it'd be difficult to know at that point which of the two that it was and and unless you were at that moment then you weren't the high priest just because you had been or will be so that's why Paul says that and that's why Luke says it was during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas there's only one at a time but they changed back and forth so much that it was hard to keep track of any given time who would have been the high priest. So at that point, he says, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And this is John the Baptist. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, John is, like I said, he is a priest. He is the messenger of the Most High. He is the forerunner of the Christ. He is the one who is the fulfillment of the prophecy that's there in Malachi. He is also the forerunner that he speaks about himself when he determines and says what his mission is going to be here in just a second. But he is that guy. That's who John is. But he is also, as I've said, a priest because he's in the priestly line. And so it's odd that John comes and, say, and, and preaches a message that's baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins, because that isn't how it was done. You offered a sacrifice. You were baptized also. Baptized meaning you, you immerse yourself in a mikvah. A water bath. Now, since that time, there 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 are so many strict regulations on the depth of the the mikvah, the kind of water that can be in it, the amount of water, exactly the amount of water that can be in there. And so John's calling them though to this other place. He's calling them to the Jordan River, and and, and he's saying this is how this this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he's is he saying no to the temple and the sacrificial system? No, but he is a rebuke to the temple and the sacrificial system. So they they had an opposite problem. 400 years after the time of Malachi, in the, in the time of Malachi, they were bringing junk offerings. By the time that Jesus comes, they, they had they'd at least done that much that they no longer did that, but it was a scam. Because what you would do is, if you were coming to a festival from outside Jerusalem, there was no point, really, in bringing your own animal because you didn't know whether it was going to be found acceptable to the priest. And so what you would do is you would just bring some extra money, and then when you got to the temple, there would be there people there selling sacrificial animals. And those sellers of sacrificial animals could guarantee you that that animal that you purchased was acceptable to the priest because they had pre-approved those sacrifices, those animals. And so now you could know for certain that your offering would be accepted. Well, there was a little money funneled backwards to the priest from that. And so there was a corruption in a different way at that time. And so John is saying, come on, come here and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Well, I'd prefer that because I don't have to make that sacrifice that way. It's not as costly to me. But at the same time, it, it, I believe they believe that John had been given this ministry, even though he's a priest, he's been given this ministry of baptism. Now with a mikvah, like I said, you've already dealt with your sin through the sacrifice. Then you go into the mikvah, but you do it yourself. 
you go there. But is John acting like a priest here? Because he's making the way to the Lord clear, and that's the job of a priest, is to make sure that there's no obstruction for the worshiper to bring his sacrifice. And so what, what is the sacrifice and the sacrifice that God wants? And he says it again and again in the Old Testament. It's a contrite heart. And so the sacrifice is our humility in approaching the throne and, and a heart that is characterized by contrition for sin, which means simply that, that we are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us, and the burden of them is intolerable. And that's exactly what the, the confession in Rite 1 in the Anglican world says. It takes seriously the nature of sin. And so when John says this is, this is how you get forgiveness of sins, is to come here with that contrite heart and a desire to repent. As it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And so what John's doing is preparing a group of people, those who will come in in response to that message and that call for repentance, he's preparing those people to embrace and pursue righteousness, to set aside the sin that has beset them, to let that go to drop it there, to confess it, to repent, and then to move in a different direction so that when the Lord comes, when he suddenly appears, as Malachi says, they will be prepared to greet him. Horribly and unfortunately, John's gospel begins with that that passage, John 1, 1 to 18, and it says in there, he came to his own, but his own received him not. They didn't recognize him. They didn't receive him. Now, it sounds like they receive him, on Palm Sunday, but but that's not a full reception, because four days later they were willing to turn on him. He didn't do the things that he wanted to do, they wanted him to do. They wanted him to become king. There were times when they wanted him to be a prophet like Moses in the sense that he provided food day after day after day. They wanted all these things, but that's not why he came. And he continued to the end to do the will of his father rather than the will of the people around him. But the people, those who were beset by their sins, those who were were struggling under the weight of their sins or their infirmities, those people came to Jesus in order to lay their burdens down in order that he might redeem and heal them. That's why you see lepers coming to him. That's the reason you see all the other people who need healing coming to Jesus. He's their only hope. And he's our only hope. But for more than that, for more than physical healing, he's our only hope for eternal life. And so when we come to him, initially, we come with all our sin, we come with all our baggage, we bring everything to him, and then he cleanses us with the washing and the regeneration of baptism and the giving of the Holy Spirit, that we might now live different lives. We might have different priorities. We might be those who join him on that mission, join on John's mission. But John's acting in both capacities as prophet and priest. And so as priest, what is his job? His job as a priest would have been to to teach, which he's clearly doing. And second, it would have been to, to... Make sure that the offering for your sins is worthy, 
It's worthy of the Lord, which is perfection, the best you can bring. And so what does he do? He tells you. He tells you exactly what sacrifice is necessary for you. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He points you to the sacrifice you need to bring. Bring him. Bring that lamb right there, the Lamb of God. Bring Jesus. And we know that his sacrifice was acceptable because in, in Revelation 5, the one sitting on the throne holds the scroll with the seven seals, and no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth is worthy of opening it. John begins to weep, and one of the elders points to him and said, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he looks, and what does he see? A lamb, looking like it was slain. And then that lamb goes and takes the scroll and begins to open it, and all of heaven says, you are worthy. So we know that that lamb that John speaks about is the lamb who is worthy to take the scroll and to receive glory and blessing and power and honor. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The, the, the priest, the final great priest of the Old Covenant, John, points and says, there's the sacrifice. That's the only one. It's the only one necessary, and it's not just good for your sins. It's good for the sins of the whole world. That's the job of a priest, to approve of the sacrifice, and it's one of the first things John did. And he knew it from the beginning. When Jesus came to be baptized by him, what did he say? Nope, I'm not worthy. You should be baptizing me. He knew it from the beginning, and then God gave him the sign of the dove that comes and lands and stays on Jesus. That's the sign you'll have, John. And John saw it, and John knew it, and John believed. The Philippians passage, that's our final lesson today, Paul says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for your, you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, you have joined me in pointing to Jesus, and that makes me happy. It gives me joy, and I am thankful that you have remained faithful to that. I mean, remember the Philippian church, they got to Philippi, and there were really not very many Jews there. There weren't enough, which would be 10 righteous men. There weren't 10 of those in Philippi, so they couldn't have a synagogue. So there's, there's not a minyan, there's not a quorum of righteous men. So there's no synagogue, so they have to go down to the river where they believe there would probably be a place of prayer, and there they meet the women. And it's from there that the church begins to grow, and then Paul and Silas are thrown into prison in Philippi, and they convert the jailer. And so the jailer would have been one of the elders and leaders in that church. And so these people are, are not formerly Jews, particularly, or primarily, this would be a mostly Gentile congregation. And what he's saying is, is that, that I am so thankful that you continue in the faithful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that I thank him always in my prayers. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And he could have put parenthetically, so long as you continue on the path you're on. As long as you continue to be faithful, he will be faithful as well. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you're all partakers with me of grace, 
both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Paul, Paul's not setting himself at some higher level than everybody else. He says, no, you're partakers of, with me of grace. He's writing from prison while he's saying this, and that's to be our attitude, too. We're, we're not to concern ourselves about our circumstances in such a way that it overwhelms our joy in the gospel. And Paul says, you're partakers with me of the grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. So we share these things. In some ways, you're in prison, too, because you're, you're small and powerless in that place. You're inconsequential. You, 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 you're not rulers there. And then he says, but in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, we share something in common. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent which is exactly what I told you the job of the priest was. It was to approve what was excellent, and it was to turn away any sacrifice or offering that was less than excellent. So Paul says, no, you, I'm, gonna, I'm praying for you that you will approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Is that the way that we think about ourselves? Is that way, the way we think about the church? Is that, that our goal in life is to be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God? That's the prayer Paul prayed for his churches. It's the prayer that he prayed for his people. It, it was his great desire to see that in his people. It should have been the desire of the Old Testament priesthood. But we see in that conversation I relayed with you about how they felt about the people. They didn't feel that way about those people. They weren't doing anything to make that possible among the people. Paul had a New Testament perspective on things. He, he understood that it was all grace. It wasn't what you were born into. No, it was what you were reborn into that mattered. It was about grace. It was about love, but it was still about judgment, that you be prepared for the coming of the day of Christ. And that's our prayers, right? It's our prayer, and it should be our aim and our goal is to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. But we do that. We do that by approving what is excellent. And once we've seen excellent and experienced excellent, we chase it all the time. We want, to, we want God to see his reflection when he's done with that refining work. We want, to see, we want him to see in that reflection his image revealed. He wants to see Jesus Christ in us and through us.